0: You're listening to a podcast from Blogging
1: Heads TV. Hi, this is Robert Wright. Fourteen years ago, I co-founded Blogging Heads TV, which produces the podcast you're about to hear. And I'd like to ask you for some help. Blogging Heads is an independent podcast network that presents a diversity of views, including some that are well outside the mainstream, and provides a place for civil discussion between people who disagree with each other. We think this is very important at a time when political polarization is a famously big problem, and a lot of podcasts, with all due respect, sound like ideological echo chambers. If you want to help support our mission, you can make a donation by going to patreon.com p-a-t-r-e-o-n slash nonzerofoundation. That's patreo dot N-O-N-Z-E-R-O Foundation. The Non-Zero Foundation is the nonprofit I run that operates Bloggingheads TV and also operates Meaning of Life TV and puts out the Non-Zero newsletter. And by the way, you can get that newsletter for free by going to nonzero.org and subscribing. Now, if you don't feel like supporting our endeavors financially, we of course encourage other forms of support like rating and reviewing our podcasts on iTunes or on the podcast app of your choice, or standing on street corners singing our praises, or whatever. In any event, thanks for listening.
2: We are underway. This is Glenn Lowry, Brown University, Watson Institute for International Public Affairs, The Glenn Show. Here with Stephen Tellis, Professor of Politics at Johns Hopkins University. Hey, Steve, how you doing? And Senior Fellow at the Niskanen
0: Center. Let us not leave that out, Cannon. Let us not leave that out. Very important. That sounds vaguely libertarian to me. Is that correct? Well, the uh, it's complicated. Um, the Cannon Center was started by refugees from the Cato Institute and uh, Mercatus Center and places like that, um, but people who had uh, realized the limits of libertarianism, um, and uh, Brink Lindsay, Jerry Taylor, uh, now Sam Hammond, who used to be at Mercatus Center, Bill Wilkinson, all those sorts of people. So th-
2: this is never libertarianism as an analogy to never Trumpism. This is, uh, this is, we grant that, uh, the, mark, the free market insights might have uh, had some play, but in the hands of the wrong people, Uh, they, they, they run a, they run a foul. I mean, what what is it? Are are you a holier than somebody? Purer than somebody? Well,
0: no, I think, I think part of the argument we, we have. So we have a great paper that came out a year or so ago by, um, Sam Hammond, who's one of the fellows here called the free market welfare state that basically argues that, um, uh, you know, markets are disruptive, right? Um, and they have lots of, um, consequences of dislodging, social relationships and other kinds of things, right? And if you don't have ways to smooth out the disruptions of the market economy, then what people are going to try and do is uh, throw a spanner in the works of it, right? And so the problem with libertarianism, right, is that it's sociologically impossible, right? That is, if you really want to have creative destruction, then you have to have ways to smooth out and share the Cost of the disruptions at market. Yeah,
2: I get it. You didn't build this in, in in so many words. I mean, I get it, but I've never been entirely persuaded by that argument. Um, so, I mean, I, let me stipulate. I'll grant that markets are going to leave a lot of stuff undone. So then, there's work. There's uh, you know, you have to take care of old people. You you have to uh, you know, there's there's uh, uh, stuff that the market is not going to do, but it. Usually this argument is usually an excuse for some stuff that we know is bad, regulating, interfering with the market, putting a cap on some price somewhere. Usually what it ends up being is only a fancy way of justifying what Adam Smith told us doesn't work and it still doesn't work. And it's a confusion of a kind of scientific claim, which is that if you allow prices to allocate resources, you're going to get the best of all worlds with a normative claim, which is that I'm obligated to do something for my fellow citizens.
0: Well, no, I think the argument is that if you don't want to have the kind of things that end up screwing around with the price system and screwing around with the ability of markets to reallocate capital from one thing to another, um, that you want all that, right? So I think that's what we agree with libertarians on, right, which is that the thing that creates growth is the disruption of of previous economic models, previous ways of uh, of organizing moving capital from one place to another. Um, but if you don't have ways to smooth that out through other mechanisms like redistribution, then people are going to try and do it through the price system, through screwing up prices, through regulation. So in general, we're, we're fairly skeptical of regulation, okay. but we like redistribution. So, um, and we'd like other ways of, 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 helping to deal with that. And that's why, again, we think that libertarianism in practice is going to devolve into um, sort of anti, into pro-regulatory populism, which is why... Okay, I'm, then
2: let me just ask you this. Where do you sit on minimum wage?
0: I'm fairly skeptical. Where are you on um, on immigration? Um, so immigration is complicated. I'm probably on the slightly more restrictionist side of Niskanen. In general, we're pretty um, pro immigration. Um, I see the economic case for it, but I think that in practice, um, the scale of immigration you can have is a function of how, um, how assimilative you are, right? And I think the United States is not as good at assimilation as it used to be. Um, and, <laughs> have, have you
2: seen Ibram Kendi's book,
0: uh,
2: mm-hmm. How to Be an Anti-Racist, or something like that? He defines assimilation as, in effect, a microaggression or a macroaggression he defines it as a, a brand of racism
0: right but again uh, i think that's another case where if you want fairly open markets including markets in in uh, labor right then there's lots of other things government has to do right it has okay, to Okay i was consistent. asking
2: you where you are on some stuff excuse me for interrupting so where are you on corporate uh, executive compensation and corporate governance
0: uh, i mean i don't i'm general i'm I'm pretty skeptical government's going to be very good at regulating that. Um, I think, you know I, I know, I know people who say that there's some basic, you know, issues in corporate law that mean that um, uh, corporate executives dominate compensation committees. And I see all that, but I'd rather, I'd rather tax away a lot of their, uh, their high earnings rather than trying to figure out exactly how we know who earns and deserves what. I think that's a test
2: case for this thing about faith in the market. And they're right when they say it's faith because it is faith in a way. Uh, the t- the uh, case being uh, CEO makes a thousand times or a hundred times or 50 times whatever the line worker is making, which is uh, basically it's a market for talent. It's very rarefied talent. These jobs, and I mean, I'm with Tyler Cowen on this. They're, these jobs are not easy. They're hard to do. It's hard to find people who do them well. Uh, athletes have paid a lot of money, opera stars have paid a lot of money, there's no reason why there should be any particular relationship between the median worker's wage no. and the CEO's salary, let the market sort it out and unless I have very good evidence that there's some kind of self-dealing and corruption against which the antitrust law should strike uh, at some level uh, I should just uh, let it come with, you know, why worry about what Will Chamberlain you know, this is Robert Nelson, why worry about what Will Chamberlain is being paid? Okay, well, so I did write this book Ah. I, have
0: this, I have this right just here.
2: happens to have it in I here. I just happen
0: to have this here. Um, so, and the, the Wilt Chamberlain thing I think is an interesting case in the context of this book available at all better bookstores. Um,
2: That's the captured economy, everybody. Captured With economy. Lindsay, right?
0: Um, and one of it is right. So in the, in the case of um, Wilt Chamberlain, right. Wilt Chamberlain is, right, is his earnings are partially a function of the fact that people show up at stadiums and want to see him and whatnot, but um, Will Chamberlain's also working in a oligopolistic industry, right, that is the NBA constrains entry, right, and again, this is the entering feature of the United States, which is we often think the United States is so wonderfully market-oriented, but we have the least market-oriented sports leagues in the world, right, as everybody in the NBA, every franchise in the NBA is guaranteed a place in the top league. That's not true in European soccer, for example. In European soccer, if your team is bad, it gets relegated to the second division, the third division, the fourth division, right? Okay. Anyway, but I think that gets to a larger point, which is yeah. the more the important thing though is there there are very high earnings that are a function. Of barriers to entry, market constraints, all kinds of other things, right? And our economy is full of that, right? There's a lot of high high end inequality that is not a function of markets' red and tooth and claw, which I'm generally sympathetic to. Okay, but to you know whether it's intellectual property or the way we regulate and subsidize finance or the way we create yep. licensing, all those things actually, you know, those are areas where we should be very skeptical. Of the high earning at the at the top, um, but those are not our results of um, creative destruction and spontaneous order.
2: And what and what proportion of the GDP are we talking about here? I mean, uh, is this a five percent or thirty five percent hit? So we spend
0: the rents. rents you talk money. about rents.
2: You're saying you know not subject to uh, all of the the kind of uh, accountability pressures that competition would bring. And people are finding ways to rake off the top or create wedges, and uh, they're walking away. And you want to, and you want to eat into that. And I want to know, you know, how much is on the table?
0: Yeah, I don't. I mean, we we an enormous amount of time trying to figure out how you would figure out what aggregate percentage of the you know top earned in inequality is a result of rent, and nobody has figured out a way to calculate like that. So I don't, I don't feel bad because nobody else has. The only thing I can say is when you actually look. At who's in the top 1%, right? There's an enormous amount of that are in industries that we know are subject to some kind of, um, significant, mar- you know, finance is one of those, right? And finance is full of government subsidy for asset managers, for implicit guarantees, all kinds of other areas, right? Intellectual property, if you look at the, you know, entertainers, right? A huge amount of their, their incomes are a result of the fact that we have a very restrictive intellectual property regime right which has now been extended worldwide through trade agreements okay right? okay
2: let me let me interject for a minute let me interject uh let me i'm i'm i want to grant this so now uh what 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 business are we in here intellectuals theorizing about the captured economy presumably as a prelude to policy intervention and what would be the instrument of policy intervention would be government and who are those people they're the people who run for office um so and the interest that they represent. So at the end of the day, haven't I only shifted the arena where the rents are being allocated from the cowboy economy, uh, to the cowboy polity, uh, to, to the kind of, uh, Washington, uh, swamp? Well, but, <laughs> but know, I guess I'm saying the Washington. Government swamp is, is the thing instrument. That... Government's the instrument of the intervention and government is subject to a kind of political rent seeking.
0: Right. Well, again, I'm saying that that's, you know, that's for me is the story of the last 40 years is a story that we often tell the story of the last 40 years. Yeah, I know in your university at Brown, right, people often complain about neoliberalism, right? I'm sure you've, you've come across this. And they say the last 40 years is all a story about deregulation and markets going wild. But yeah, as we argue in the captured economy, right, the, um, the last 40 years has actually uh, seen an explosion of Regulation at the top, right? Again, we had a we had a pretty uh, lax intellectual property regime at the beginning of this supposedly neoliberal era, right? And now we have an extremely strict, right? The strictest intellectual property regime in the world, and intellectual property is just a form of regulation, right? And in finance, right, you look at the uh, the scale of of subsidy through the tax code that we have is way larger, right? The implicit guarantees in the financial sector are way larger. The the sheer, the the percentage of the economy covered by licensing now is over a third of, job, of people in the United States have to get a license before they can do their job and lots of those are high-end occupations. So I guess I tell a story where what we really need to do is in many of these cases is significant deregulation, right? We need to get some of these things out of the swamp and reduce... So, so
2: wait a minute, there's no case, um, and I'm not trying to argue with you, I'm just really asking, there's no case for occupational licensure? Occupational um, licensure is ipso facto, and you say intellectual property so dismissively, uh, it should seems to me that it's not obvious at all how you would define... Uh, in terms of the the production and the dissemination of ideas, who owns what? And there have to be some rules to that. So no, I'm not, I'm not any, sure what the, you're saying.
0: All the details on on licensing, but again, it's not clear to me actually in medicine that we need uh licensing, right? Most of what, when people say, oh, well, you're going to have a surgeon operate on you with that. But in fact, the surgeons are really covered by, um, uh, are right, not actually covered by licensing, right? They have their own professional, uh, certification, which is not a licensing regime, right? All licensing does is constrain the overall supply of doctors, right? And also licensing also includes all the ways that the medical profession constrains the, the number of people who are, who are educated, right? The number of slots in medical schools, the number of people who can perform, um, uh, who can move from another country and become doctors here. And, and this, well, is an issue, sorry, this is an issue that I, I we're going to be doing more on just at the Scan Center. Um, you can't take your Medicare and go and get care in other countries, right? We don't have free trade. Okay, I got and it. I got it. it. I'm, I'm sorry I, to interrupt, but you, anyways, right. so exactly. all the, we have all the, a lot the, of things to talk about. Yeah, we have a lot of things to talk about. No, but but, I, anyway, I, but I want to ask
2: you something about this because uh, uh, certification, uh, you know, Public supply and private supply. You say that, uh, the, the physicians can, uh, create a, an entity, an organization, and they can have certain procedures for certification. And then I can have a legislature require, and I don't know, I guess there's an administrative board or something that's overseeing this. And it's, and, and I'm, I, you know, air safety. Uh, would I want the, uh, uh, public sector to be, you know, uh, primarily in control of the certification, or whatever. Would I believe that to, as it were, the uh, self organized? It's not obvious to me. So, I, I and, and you know, right. what, I mean, is, it, what I mean. is it
0: about intellectual property that troubles you? This is a, a, another.
2: Uh, you well, know. one, I mean, the main
0: the main argument is it's a rent when it's in excess of what was necessary to bring the um, the factor of production into existence, right? And so, one thing who's we the, know
2: Who's deciding that?
0: So what, well, one, so, so i think the the best example of this is in uh let's not drugs are a complicated case and i think there's an argument for some intellectual property i think there are better alternatives to intellectual property that is we can think about things like prizes and other things that are also ways to bring drugs into existence that would actually lead to a better market but um in entertainment right we had plenty of people wanting to become musicians wanting to become to make movies 40 years ago when we had a much shorter, um, copyright, uh, uh, term, right. And that copyright term has only gotten larger and larger and larger, including retroactively, right. That is we extended the copyright term for things that were already in existence, right. So in terms of the basic argument for intellectual property, why would you extend intellectual property to something that already exists, right? You can't. That's not going to cause people to go back in time like the Terminator. And okay, go but it seems to me path. that you're
2: talking about degree, not kind. It seems to me that you're saying you can do too much or too little. And how long should the life of the patent be? That would be my metaphor for it. I'm going to confer a monopoly on the inventor for a limited period of time, and then we're discussing how long. Right. But well, that's not an argument against conferring the monopoly in the first place. Right. Again,
0: I'm not a hardcore libertarian, right? I think there's sometimes that, um, licensing is better than the alternatives, but a licensing is a very dangerous kind of regime because it almost always puts the, um, the foxes in charge of the hen house. So like my favorite example, of this is dentists. Um, there was a big Supreme Court case, in North Carolina dentist case, which, uh, was about Uh, teeth whitening in uh, malls and so they have the you know these kiosks that do teeth whitening in the mall and it turns out you know anybody can put a little thing in somebody's mouth and have them do it but of course dentists wanted that to happen in uh, the dentist's office the North Carolina Dental Association you know dental board which is a government agency right is the one who determines scope of practice which is what is dentistry that can only be practiced yeah I got it man and, of course, they wanted that teeth whitening in the mall to only be yes. done in their things where they could charge a very high price for it would, would not be the, the competitive price that you would get by people doing it in the mall, right? Because the only people who show up at the North Carolina Dental Board are, surprise, surprise, dentists, right? Um, I, that's I a thing governance regime.
2: I think it's I think it's an interesting subject, and I you know I'm provoked by what you're saying, and and I'm I'm largely persuaded that there's something there, but the only point uh, here is you're I, I was just going to make the observation, from. Steve. I was going to make the observation that the the design of a you know of a like mechanism or policy regime is surely going to depend on the particulars of the technology and the whatnot. So say prizes versus a uh, uh, patent, uh, that's got to depend somehow, doesn't it? on the structure of the, the production function, as it were, of new ideas and how those things actually work. And that's going to vary from industry and era that it's going to be different in, uh, uh, you know, entertainment than it is going to be, et cetera. So anyway, that's the observation I wanted. Seems like there's an interesting kind of design problem, you know, contract theory kind of yeah. problem that's implied there.
0: But that's yeah, not no, what we came here to talk about. Right. But then, anyways, the whole point you were trying to get at is where, where, where am I coming from? Yes, that and is the point. Coming from, right? And we're coming from a side in which we're more skeptical for, you know, lots of reasons that libertarians are about. We, we worry about regulatory capture. We worry about the loss of, um, of dynamism that produces growth. But we're very strongly in favor of broad social insurance mechanisms. In part, again, because what do we think government's good at? Good, at, government's good. At- Where are you
2: on wealth taxation? Sorry that this is twenty questions, but I'm really, really interested. Uh
0: I'm, I'm pretty skeptical. I, 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 I think there's very little evidence that we're going to be able to do it well. Right. That is, I, I think that's simply the, you know, the, the advantage of income taxes, right, is there's a. Transaction or of some sort that you can get in the middle of, right? But any kind of taxation where you don't have a transaction to get in the middle of, right, and then scoop up some of it, just seems like kind of a nightmare to administer, right? How are we going to be going out there and? and And here here I I thought, here I had hoped that you would respond on a point of principle. (laughs) Well,
2: I hoped that there was some limit to the compromising of uh, of a liberal. Principles that the uh, you know I don't know wow. you know well of, I do
0: think that I mean well, look the liberal no, this, is, a, this is
2: people's wealth it's not your wealth you have you're confiscating their wealth this is just the state as a bandit
0: uh, well again you know look the state's taken yeah you know, I mean the real limit is what you're spending it's it, it ha- it's success right? hating it's uh-huh. it's
2: uh, when I every time I hear Elizabeth Warren say giant corporations. I cringe because uh it plays to it's a you know what's wrong with a giant corporation? God damn it. The world is actually founded on giant, rests on giant corporations. Uh there's there's you know, I don't know exactly what the right word is. I want to say populism, but it doesn't kind of feel right. And uh you know, well, so, is, so I'm against it. You, you, you see where I'm coming from. I'm against it on principle. That right. was my wealth, not yours. You don't have a right to take it.
0: Yeah, I'm not, I, maybe I have. I'm a I'm a less principled guy than you are. Glenn. I, <laughs> oh, think that's possible. I just thought it
2: was a different principle. I'm inviting I, you I to enunciate a, a different
0: well, principle. Government's got to go and take revenue from somewhere, right? The fun the question is where, you know, what do we want government to be doing, right? And then it ought to be either through taxes or through debt, right? It has to pay for it, right? I guess that's where I think you know, trying to figure out what the principle. Is on you know because if it's not taking it through wealth, it's taking it through income, it's taking it through sales tax, it's taking it through something, right? I think in general, what you want is, a le- is the least distortionary. And again, I think problem with the wealth tax okay. is it's massively distortionary, right? You think about all the things that all the the somersaults people are going to go through in order to you know. Reduce the purported value of their assets to hide them. No, I, I've got them. that, and
2: also to take their uh, their uh, wealth and themselves off of our off the shore. Now, my right. like understanding is wealth taxes in uh, a number of Northern European
0: countries have been tried and have been rolled. I back. Mean, look, the other side though is look, we have massive wealth taxes in this country, right? You're a homeowner in you know Providence, right? That's a wealth tax. It's a tax on your house. Now it's a local tax, right? But somehow, you know, our whole system of education funding rests on a wealth tax, but it's based on a um, immobile tax that where we generally have lots of transactions on which to figure out value, right? So that's where I think I, I, I find the principled case to be problematic because we've already decided that we want to have wealth taxes, right? And then the question is, do we extend it to a bunch of things with um, that can easily be picked up and put on a truck and moved around or simply only exist in electronic signals somewhere. Um, and that, to me, just seems like a non-principled question. OK. Unless you think the property tax on your house is somehow a violation of your now, natural.
2: You're making a good point. I, I I need to think more about this. You want to talk about
0: impeachment? Oh, God. do we yeah, I guess we have to talk about impeachment. Everybody wants to talk okay, about no, it. OK,
2: no, you're a political scientist. You're right there in Washington, D.C. And when you're not doing political economy stuff with Brink Lindsay and others at the <clears throat> this Cannon uh, Center, uh, you're writing books about Never Trumpism and uh, the conservative legal movement, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And so, so you, it seems to me, are a perfect person to opine on... Uh, the larger political implications of the impeachment process, including the implications for the future of the Republican Party in the event that the president should be removed from office, the rare, the unlikely uh, event. Uh, but also, you know, what it looks like in terms of partisan political division going forward, given that, uh, the Democrats in the House have decided to go this
0: route. Well, let me say that I, I am profoundly ambivalent on, uh, on impeachment, which is a position not many people have. Everybody's pretty much lined up. That is, on the one hand, I think there's a very strong case for impeachment. Um, and I think the case rests on, I know that you're probably more skeptical of, uh, but I think the case basically rests on what we think of as the nature of executive power, right? So we both know uh, our friend Harvey Mansfield, who wrote a great book called Taming the Prince, um, which was about the origins of the idea of a democratic executive, right? And this was a big problem for the founders, right? That is all we had known really were kings, right? Was monarchies, right? And what the essence of a monarch, right, is the fusion of public and private power, right? That is the that the monarch literally owns the executive office, right? It's part of his property, right? The lands and all the other things, right? And so there's a fusion of public and private. And so what the framers were trying to do was say, could we create an executive who was occupying an office, right? Who, it was not his office, right? It was essentially public property that he was getting for a temporary. Okay. Check. I'm getting around, I'm getting around to some Please. And so the thing that bothers me most about the Ukraine business, right? Is that clearly Trump was using the executive office for his own personal electoral gain, right? That is, he clearly was saying, I want to trade off this public thing, right? That's what we mean by the national security of the United States. Okay, right? he's and acting
2: he, like a king in right. the sense of yeah, the I mean, classical political theoretic yeah. problem of the creation of an executive right. that's responsible to the democratic process. Right. And, right, and, that's and what therefore,
0: think, therefore, that. One, that's what I, think, I, think, well, I think there's two things, right? <laughs> that, and all the emolument business. And the emolument business is the same thing, right? He's using a public thing, the public office, right, for his private, um, you know. I'm so unconvinced by
2: this, you wouldn't believe it. Go ahead, finish it. So
0: (laughs) this to me, right, is the difference between an American president, right, and not necessarily right, a king, right, but a Berlusconi, right? Someone who fuses, who makes the executive office okay. a thing simply for the instrument of his own private gain. Okay. Right? And this is why so on the one hand, I think a lot of the people trying to figure out, well, was it a crime? Was it what was the specifics, right? This is I not got it. impeachment is not mainly a retroactive business right it's not going out it's not like a criminal proceeding where you're trying to go back and figure out that somebody do this specific thing under the law that you have to you know punish right it's forward looking in two ways first steve come on you filibustering man let me finish i mean you're lecturing okay all right well you go ahead then i know <coughs> no i i should
2: let you finish but i'm just all right, observing
0: all right let me finish the argument. and so the, the the main argument right is it's first of all to prevent things going on in the future by the president himself, right, that keep him from doing this in the 2020 cycle, and to say for all other future, including Democrats, right, that this is not acceptable. This is, there's a line here, right, and the only way to, to keep that sort of line where you end up in banana republic, authoritarian fusion of public and private, right, is to say that this pattern, which is not just in foreign affairs, but also in his private affairs and emoluments, is simply inconsistent with democratic politics. So it's not a referendum on Trump and is he a good president? What do we think about him? Right? It's this specific violation of what I think of as a constitutional norm. But I'm okay. about to back that off in a second. So
2: I, I don't I don't know where to begin or quite or quite what to say. But I don't agree with you. Uh, <laughs> take the emoluments thing. Here's what I see. Um. Nobody who has previously occupied the office has ever done a goddamn thing in the private sector and never owned anything significant. They have all been, with, you know, notable exceptions that you could enumerate, the Eisenhowers of the world, politicians. A businessman gets elected president. This is not an endorsement of Donald Frigging Trump. It's an observation about the structure of power in our country. He gets elected, and he's a tycoon. And he's got assets all over the world. And he's a player. He's a deal maker. He's a fraudster. He's a whatever he is. He's a huckster. He's a hustler. Now, that's what happened. That's what happened in 2016. A guy who actually owned buildings on other continents came to occupy the office. Now, you're talking about emoluments. I'm almost certain that his net worth, at the end of the day, his lifetime value denominated in present dollars, is less because he got elected president. His brand is worth less because he got elected president. Whereas before, he could have hoped to get 60 or 70% of some market. Now he's only going to get 25%. Whereas before, his name on a building increased the value of the enterprise. Now it's going to diminish it. It's bullshit. It's penny-ante bullshit. That's what I think. Now, as far as uh, 1776 and 2019 are concerned, it just sounds like you've yourself into a politically convenient position. The Democrats are obviously playing politics with the impeachment process. This is Robert Mueller, Mueller 2.0, and it's going to end in the same way. Okay, they're avoiding politics. Trump is holding rallies around the country. They're holding hearings, it's bullshit. That's what I think.
0: All right, so let me tell you. So, I mean, I was in general, I think, where Nancy Pelosi was. Right. Nancy Pelosi didn't want to impeach either for some reasons I'm going to get to in a second. So, again, I'm not saying that I'm actually in favor of impeachment. I'm saying that for me is the strongest reason to be in favor. Right. Now, if you want it, I'll give you the reason against. Right. The first reason is, I think we talked about this before, I think there's a very, an, an entirely non-trivial possibility of significant civil unrest if Trump is, uh, impeached and then there are removal, um, there's a removal trial, right? Partially, again, this is the reason why I think he's not a good president and shouldn't be president in the first place, but the first thing I think that's going to happen when there's a trial is that Trump is going to say, you know, American patriots, they're trying to, you know, to remove me from office. Of you course should- he is. <laughs> he's going to fight back. Well, no, but he's going to fight back. He's going to say, look, you should all show up at the at the Capitol, right? And my supporters, yeah. he's, he's often.
2: Especially if the talking heads at the media outlets are ranting and raving with each other about how awful it is and how the sky's falling. Right. Especially, I'm saying, especially I'm saying, if, if, if we get that polarized that that's what's going on. Of course, he's going to call his people into the streets.
0: Right. But I'm saying he's Next. going to call, and his people, as he has repeatedly mentioned, right? Is, is, is people are, uh, are heavily armed, right? They're going to show up in Washington with guns, right? And it is not, it you know, I don't well, think, I you said
2: that to, myself here at Blogging Heads. I don't think it's a pretty picture.
0: I don't think, I don't think you have to, you know, I mean, all you have to have is, A, guns are, you know, the, we don't have open carry in DC, right? The police are going to try and disarm people. Guns are going to get this, you know, we, we, you don't have to worry. And, and that, is a nightmare scenario, right? That's the kind of scenario that really is taking us into um, banana Republicanism, right? The second is that, you know, I think Trumpism is bad for the Republican Party, right? And the best way to deal with it is to have him lose, you know, know, humiliatingly lose and have to be, you know, removed by the Secret Service in in January 2021, right? And (laughs) he's not... Right. If he if he doesn't lose that way. Right. If he's removed by a significant number of Republicans, then there will be, I think, unquestionably a sort of stab in the back narrative. Right. That not that it wasn't that it wasn't that Trump, you know, humiliatingly caused the Republican Party to go into the ditch. Right. But that a few elite Republicans, which is already a powerful meme that's out there, um, took it away from him. Right. That's that's your stab in the back metaphor, right? And I think what you're going to see is the Republican Party crack up, right? And especially given what we were talking about before, right? I think we need to, yeah, I'm a Democrat, but I think we need a functional Republican Party, right? Because I don't trust the Democrats to rule with super majorities, you know, you know, that is a lot of people I know say, oh, you know, that stuff Elizabeth Warren's talking about, it's never okay. going to happen, but it's never going to happen. Only I mean, a I don't understand how you can the be the this canon center
2: and not think that the uh, policy uh, program that is being trumpeted by the Democratic candidates will be a disaster for the country.
0: I think in lots of ways – I think I just said that. I think I just said that that's, the, that's <laughs> what I worry about, right, is that, um, you know, a Democratic Party that has an agenda that looks like Elizabeth Warren's, right – is one that I would be very happy for separation of powers for, right? That is, you need a functioning Republican Party to not allow them to, you know, I mean, one of the things Elizabeth Warren's in favor of is basically socializing 40% of the capital of every firm in the country by giving uh, on of, the board well, of directors to workers. Yeah, I mean, that's, for, to me, that's crazy in this terrible power. That's stealing food,
2: right? my property if I'm a shareholder of that company. That's what that's doing. That's politicizing and collectivizing my property.
0: Yeah, look, I think it's terrible. Look, I mean, again, you're more principled than I am. Um, but it's terrible public policy. No, I'm talking
2: about politics and I'm talking about the ideology of it and I'm talking about the historical sweep of it. And it, it,
0: you know. So anyway, so I think so. But But no, let me just ask you
2: this. I I said that, uh, the impeachment inquiry is an end run around politics. I said Trump mobilizes his base. He's holding rallies around the country. He's a politician. Gangster politician, if you like, I'm saying the Democrats are legal logic, ch- logic choppers, and they're not actually engaging on the issues. Now, I, I wonder what you think about that. He looks—he looks to me poised to win this election,
0: right? Well, again, I think that's another reason why Pelosi originally didn't want to didn't want to impeach. Right? I think it's really important to remember how much she was holding back her own caucus until the Ukraine stuff. Right? The Ukraine stuff just was. You know, it was just so bad, right? Literally using the national security of the United States for your electoral, you know, purposes. Exactly, pretty much the day after the uh, the Mueller um, uh, investigation went went south, right? That was a line, and that suggests to me that at least with Pelosi, that she was not eager, precisely for the reasons you're talking about, which is if Trump has to run just on the conduct of his own administration and against, you know, a reasonable. Democrat running a reasonably Democratic agenda, he's going to lose. Right. But if the Democrats are only talking about the specifics of what exactly happened on a phone call here, right, then, you know, then that's probably good for Trump. So I think that's why just in cold electoral reasons, this is not a great idea. Right? Let me ask you
2: another kind of questions, uh, Steve, because you have been a student of the right wing of you know, the conservative movement at at some level. I mean, it's this conservative legal activism stuff. And what is happening on the left wing of the Democratic Party now ought to interest you. I would imagine that uh, you have something to say about uh, what, you know, the headline in the newspaper is, you know, the Democratic Party is a party of uh, uh, AOC and whatnot. Uh, the Democrats are too far left. Elizabeth Warren's uh, uh, Medicare for all uh, won't fly the trillions of dollars and whatnot. Uh, that, uh, they're soft on the border, that, uh, the, the reparations thing is a really, a, it's a loser, that the coalition is kind of primed to sort of go off, uh, you know, track with the general electorate in the swing states and stuff like that. So what, what is your, what is your take on left-wing activism in the shape of the Democratic Party?
0: Well, again, I think it's unproved that the Democratic Party is necessarily a majority AOC-Warren party, right? Um, I think the problem is that, uh, in a way, Biden is sort of taking up the, the space where a legitimate moderate alternative ought to be, right? Almost everybody sort of knows he's weak, um, that he's got all kinds of problems. He's got all this Hunter Biden nonsense. You don't think he's going to be the nominee? I, 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 my, my sense of Biden was always that he was going to just gradually, slowly have air come out of the balloon. And I think that's part of the, you know, I think that's, that there's a lot of truth to that. Um, But I think there's a lot, I think most of the people who are saying they want Biden is not really about Biden, right? It's that they want somebody generally in that space. In some sense, what they want is they want to vote for the generic Democrat, Right. And look, I think there are better generic Democrats in the race. I think Michael Bennett would have been a very better generic Democrat. I think Amy Klobuchar would be a better generic Democrat than Biden. Essentially, I think voters, both primary Democratic primary voters and the general electorate voters want to just say, I want to vote for a Democrat with no features whatsoever, with no biography, with no interesting positions, with no interesting things in their personal life. Right. But unfortunately, they don't have that. Right. Um, and so all that sort of vote is sort of spread around. Um, and Do you think not, Elizabeth Warren could beat Trump. I worry that you won't. I worry a lot. I mean, again, this is one of the, you know, and yeah, so I, I think Warren Sanders, um, could easily lose to, uh, to Trump. Right. Also, you know, we've had a lot of experience with Massachusetts politicians who lots of people think are going to be that such... That's named predators. Michael
2: Dukakis. You know, I once met him. John Actually, Carey. I met him at Mark Kleiman's dinner table. May Mark Kleiman rest in peace. Are you going to that thing in New York? Yeah, yeah, I'll be there. Okay, I look forward to seeing you there. But I met Michael Dukakis in uh, Katie, <laughs> uh, And no, it didn't work
0: out so well in 1988. <laughs> well, in John Kerry. I remember all these people telling me, oh, John Kerry, he's going to be this great, you know, he was the veteran, you know, and he was Reported just... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. No, but Massachusetts politicians don't travel. That's why, you know, again, I, I've had a lot of sympathy with uh, with. Clover Unless Congress. their name is Kennedy. <laughs> yeah. So, again, and it was like, you know, 50, you know, nine years ago. So, um, yeah, so I worry a lot about that, uh, that Warren uh, could lose. Right. And then I don't know what happens to, uh, you know, it, it, I could easily imagine the, the Democratic Party going even further left in the, uh, you know, after Warren loses, right? Um, but again, a lot of, there's a lot of uncertainty in American politics now. Um, and it's not even obvious to me if Trump loses, that the Republican Party is not going to be Trumpy in some significant way, right? I, I think there's a lot of possibility of a lot more factional conflict in, the, in both parties than we've seen in recent years. I think you're going to see a much stronger um uh, moderate faction, the Democratic Party, and a much stronger moderate faction in the Republican Party emerge in the next uh in the next few years. Um and that's gonna lead to I think um a lot of change in the way that, that Congress operates, right? Right now Congress is under the complete you know control of leaders, but if we had a much more factional Congress we would have uh a lot more political entrepreneurship. We would have a lot less control by the president. Yeah. Um, but I think a lot of those things are all up for grabs. Um, what did
2: you think about Brett Stevens' column on Never Trumpers uh, in The New York Times the other day?
0: I mean, so I just finished a book on Never Trumpers. Right. Uh, that's why I'm asking. I just submitted. Uh, I think that um, Never Trumpers are probably are, are. So I have a theory about the future of Never Trumpers, which is that uh, a lot of these people used to be the, the brain of the Republican Party. Right, um, that's what they thought their job was. Right, and then somebody they they deplored, right, and they couldn't swallow, got nominated, and they went into battle against him. Right, uh, and I think a lot of them think that somehow they're going to take back control of the Republican Party, and I think that's not true. Ha ha ha! Well, I, I, wait, let me finish. But right, um, <laughs> I think their future is in a much smaller um, but coherent minority, moderate faction in the Republican Party, right? That is, there's going to be a group in the Republican Party who's going to be pivotal in the sense that the dominant populist nationalist part of the Republican Party won't be able to govern without them, right? They're going to be supplying the difference between being in a majority and a minority, right? And the Never Trumpers are going to be in that. They're going to be supplying the ideas for that group. And that's going to be a group that really is going to be a pivotal group in American politics, right? But they're not going to be the, uh, the clarity for the party as a whole. That, okay.
2: My time's running short, but I want to get what you think in talking about Never Trump is about this. So imagine the scenario that you just outlined. This is a post-Trump world and it's a Trump Republican party, but with a significant, uh, as it were, minority of, uh, of, uh, non-Trump Republican principled uh, people, um, uh, They've not just set themselves against Trump. In setting themselves against Trumpism, they've set themselves against the mobs of people who turn out at these rallies all across this uh, country. And that's the problem. They've underscored the logic of the Trump critique of elites. <laughs> they're too precious. They're too precious by half. It's not saying they're wrong. Although I, well, I do think they're often wrong, I just wanted to say one more thing. I saw Bill Kristol. He came here to an event at Brown, and man, he's a shadow of informed him self with respect to Bill Kristol. I'm sorry, it was a kind of anticlimactic phenomenon.
0: Right. Well, again, I have no comment on on Bill in particular, but I don't think that's true of everyone. I don't- you know, David Frum, I think, is as strong as he's ever been, I think, intellectually- yeah, well,
2: I didn't mean to make it personal. I'm sorry. Right. I guess I did. And I, I, I should withdraw because, you know, I've known Bill for a long
0: time. But I guess I would say that you are pointing out a problem, right, which is the dominant Trumpist, you know, sign has preference intensity, right? It can get people to show up at Rallies and wear hats and, you know, and, and the work of democracy is showing up, right? And that's the thing that the moderates in both parties lack, right? And the, you know, there, I mean, A, there's not that many people who show up to these Trump rallies when you add them all up as a percentage of the country. And there's not that many people who are, you know, doing stuff for the DSA in Brooklyn and whatnot, right? But they care an enormous amount and they show up and they do the work of democratic politics. And when you're pointing about preciousness, that is the biggest problem that moderates in both parties have, right? Is they're too precious to get their hands dirty and educate, educate and organize, right? And that those are the lessons that's what I'm and actually in some sense that's at the scan and what we're telling moderates around, which is that the only way to actually get power is to earn it. Right. To earn it by organizing your fellow citizens. You sound like Ernie
2: Cortez, man. You know, my my man out uh, there in Texas. Listen, uh Stephen tells us this has been politics Wednesday. I've learned a lot. Forgive me for interrupting on occasion, but otherwise you would have talked for the whole time.
0: <laughs> I we've never done that <laughs> in one of these conversations, Glenn.
2: Signing off at the Glenn show. Uh we'll have to do it again soon, Steve. All right.
0: Talk to you later.